The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. What about the idea that um, we should think about democracy, think about the right of the people to elect uh, candidates of their choice, uh, of letting the people decide? Because your position has the effect of disenfranchising uh, voters to a significant degree. At the Supreme Court today, Justice Brett Kavanaugh expressed a concern that seemed to underlie the oral arguments over Colorado's effort to disqualify Donald Trump from this year's presidential election ballot for engaging in an insurrection. Liberal and conservative justices alike question whether the Colorado Supreme Court has the power to kick Trump off the ballot. Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Elena Kagan voiced doubts that a single state should have the power to make a decision with such national implications. I think that the question that you have to confront is why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States. In other words, you know, this question of whether a former president is disqualified for insurrection uh, to be president again is, you know, just say it, it sounds awfully national to me. In very quick order, I would expect, um, although my predictions have never been correct, uh, I would expect that uh, a goodly number of states will say, uh, whoever the Democratic candidate is, you're off the ballot, and others, uh, for the Republican candidate, you're off the ballot, and it'll come down to just a handful of states that are going to decide the presidential election. That's a pretty daunting consequence. As to the question of whether Donald Trump had engaged in an insurrection, in two hours of oral arguments, only one justice, Katanji Brown-Jackson, posed that question to Trump's attorney, Jonathan Mitchell. For an insurrection, there needs to be an organized, concerted effort to overthrow the government of the United States through violence. And this and so riot the point that is that a chaotic effort to overthrow the government is not an insurrection? No, we didn't concede that it's an effort to overthrow the government either, Justice Jackson. Right? None of these criteria were met. This was a riot. It was not an insurrection. The events were shameful, criminal, violent, all of those things. But it did not qualify as insurrection, as that term is used in Section 3. My guest is election law expert Derek Muller, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. Broad question first. Does it appear that the justices are going to rule that Colorado can't disqualify Trump from the ballot, perhaps even unanimously? Yeah, I think it's going to be a unanimous or near unanimous decision reversing the Colorado Supreme Court here. The justices across the ideological spectrum seem concerned about the notion that one state could have such an outsized influence in a presidential election to have such an influence on the rest of the process and to do so without any guidance from Congress. Uh, The presidency's unique office. It's not just an office out of one state, but an office that comes from the choices of many states making the decision. I think the notion that the Supreme Court would be expected to clean up those messes if different states reached different resolutions or that every time there was a challenge, it would end up at the Supreme Court's door was certainly unattractive to them. So I think there's a lot of consensus that Trump's name will appear on the ballot. 
Let's discuss some of the arguments that Trump raised. He'd argue that the president isn't covered by the insurrection clause because the president is not an officer of the United States as defined in that clause. And there was a lot of discussion of what is an officer, does a president qualify, and Justice Neil Gorsuch basically gave a history lesson at one point on the term officer versus office. So tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, I think Justice Gorsuch was worried about some of what we might describe as pedantic originalism, (laughs) worried about parsing these terms with such fine precision. So I think that argument was the lead argument from Trump's attorneys, but they didn't end up relying on it too heavily at oral argument. Now, that said, Justice Jackson spent a significant amount of time at argument, suggests that the history at the time shows that the Reconstruction Congress was really worried about state offices and about state factions of ex-Confederates gathering together and retaking parts of the government. And if that's the case, the fact that the word president is not listed among those offices suggests that the framers were not terribly worried about the presidency at all. And if that's the case, the inference should be the presidency was just not of their concern and therefore not one of those offices covered. So while she spoke up about that proposition, it's not clear how many other justices would agree with her. And it didn't get as much attention as some of the other issues at argument. What about kicking this over to Congress and saying that Congress has to enforce Section 3? Yeah, there were versions of the congressional enforcement question that came up. You know, Justice Kavanaugh seemed to lean most strongly into an 1869 decision called Griffin's case, which involved then Chief Justice Chase, who was riding circuit at the lower court, issuing a decision effectively saying Congress needs to do this and nobody else can do this without congressional involvement. It's not clear there was a lot of support for that. Justice Sotomayor in particular pushed back on that argument. But there was broad consensus on a different dimension. I mean, several justices expressed concern that one state could enforce this in a presidential election without some kind of federal guidance or federal oversight. That's not necessarily clear what that would look like, but I think the concern that states could go about this on their own in a presidential election to keep a candidate off and, again, have an effective exclusion that could carry over to other states was problematic and a reason why the uniquely national office, the presidency, required perhaps unique congressional legislation to implement it in such a case. Justice Kavanaugh gave what I'll call a little speech about democracy and the importance of not disenfranchising voters. Do you think that underlies all this and it's really more a political consideration that the court doesn't want to be the one to say, no, this person can't be on the ballot? Yeah, I mean, there there are some gradations of this to think about. There's one level, which is in the case of ambiguity, or uncertainty, how confident do we have to be about this result before we're going to exclude somebody? And I think somebody like Justice Jackson was leaning into that argument with this Office of the United States point. If the concerns were about state offices, the presidency is not listed, and that way in favor of allowing the candidate's name on the ballot. Justice Gorsuch and some others, yeah, did question a little bit more broadly about the consequences of this decision. And I think the consequences could be viewed in those terms of the people making a decision, the people voting, but also in terms of very real concerns about the court's involvement in the case. And while it wasn't as overt in these terms, I think there is a concern from the court that if it's asked on a regular basis to adjudicate the qualifications and candidacies of presidential candidates, it puts itself in a very difficult spot, and it finds itself the arbiter of decisions that we typically think are left to the political process. So there was an undercurrent of allowing the political process to play out, but I think part of that was more skepticism that 
these states had done the right thing or that the Supreme Court was the right place to do it, rather than maybe just some affirmation that states should be able to do what they want. Do you think there's a fear, sort of like echoes of Bush v. Gore? We don't want to be in that position? Yeah, I think there are echoes of that. I think to be sure, I think the court since Bush versus Gore is certainly acutely aware of the consequences of being involved in decisions like this. Now, Colorado Supreme Court's decision puts the United States Supreme Court in a difficult place, right? If it acts or if it doesn't act, it finds itself you know, on one side of a political question or another. So that's why I think I was somewhat heartened to see the Supreme Court justices coalescing around arguments with one another and, and supporting a sort of singular output. So I think there's going to be a lot of effort to coalesce around a clear decision from the court, a per curiam, ideally unanimous decision that resolves the issue, at least for presidential candidates or, or some set of federal candidates, and moves on to say that the political process needs to resolve it. And that might be unsatisfying to some. But I think at the top level, I think the court is aware that it doesn't want to be viewed as overtly partisan. And whatever it can do to mitigate that, it will definitely try to do. So do you have any idea what path they'll choose to get there? Yeah, I think the goal will probably be something along the lines of this notion that the presidency is a unique national office. The court has its precedents saying that states have less of an interest in patrolling the ballot for those kinds of candidacies, because it is a unique national office, that there are concerns about how states administer this inconsistently, or that if there's one state that moves first, how does that affect other states? And those practical consequences are are significant enough to suggest that Congress needs to be the one to provide guidance and rules in this context, at least when it comes to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So it will be, I think, something that is a little bit more election law heavy than Section 3 heavy, as uh, the case has been mostly litigated, but something that reflects these concerns that presidential elections are unique and require some kind of federal guidance before they can be regulated in the way that Colorado tried to do here. I think there was only one question about what's at the heart of this Colorado case. Did Donald Trump engage in an insurrection? And after an hour, Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson posed that question, and then it sort of disappeared, never never more to be heard. Yes, I think there was very little appetite on the court today to be talking about engaging in insurrection about the First Amendment issues. There was almost no discussion about those topics. There was some brief discussions about what insurrection was. Trump's attorney did mention that, you know, it was heinous acts, criminal acts committed that day, so some condemnation there about whether it was an insurrection, and they kind of stipulated and admitted that they were willing to say that, at least for purposes of argument today. And so the court did avoid some of those really thorny, in-the-weeds, fact-intensive or disputed questions, focusing instead on a a variety of other topics that they could coalesce around. And so while it might have surprised people that they didn't get a lot more attention, it was not terribly surprising to me. I think that was the issue that they wanted to avoid the most of all, messy facts with deep political consequences. If they can decide on pure law, all the better for them. There was a sort of a warning from the attorney for the Colorado voters. He he said if Colorado loses this case, the issue could come back with a vengeance if Trump is elected president and then members of Congress have to decide whether to let him take office. Did the Supreme Court, is it going to leave that open, that question? It seems like they might. Um, You know, the question of whether or not Congress on January 6th, 2025 will count electoral votes or 
try to object to them and refuse to count them is certainly an open one. And then there's the separate question about what happens after Trump takes office. Will there be lawsuits to challenge his official actions? And if so, what did those challenges look like? So if the court moves in the direction that we anticipate it's moving, uh, it seems that it's more a ballot access issue and less an issue of disqualification under Section 3. But it does leave the door open for another day to resolve these questions. Now, that said, there are significant challenges uh, in the future. For one, Trump has to win the election, and that might not happen. And if he does, you know, are there other vehicles or means to challenge this issue and set it up? And depending on how the Supreme Court writes the opinion, if it puts the ball much more clearly in Congress's court, um, there might not be other avenues to do it without some affirmative congressional action. And of course, if he is the president, I doubt he would sign any legislation that would authorize additional investigation or inquiry uh, into his conduct. So there are some open questions that arise, and I think we'll see how much uh, risk the Supreme Court is willing to tolerate in this case. After this argument and how the justices seem to be fleeing for the exits, in my opinion, <laughs> do you think that when Trump makes a request for certiorari from the D.C. Circuit Court decision rejecting his claims of presidential immunity, do you think that they'll refuse to take that case or there'll be four hardy souls who want to address that issue? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You know, if, if I'm thinking about what the court might do here, and maybe I'm wrong, but you issue a decision in a couple of weeks on this case saying Trump can appear on the ballot, and the same day you deny certiorari in the immunity case and essentially say, the D.C. Circuit opinion stands, and he can be subject to criminal prosecution. So in both cases, the court would be letting the political and legal process play out without needing to step in. Now, I don't know if they're going to do that. There might be some interest in addressing the immunity issues at some level from some justices in the court, but that is kind of a wait-and-see approach. We don't quite know how these two cases might relate to one another, but they definitely seem to be linked to some degree. And at least we'll find out pretty quickly in Supreme Court time, that is. Thanks so much for your insights, Derek. That's Professor Derek Muller of Notre Dame Law School. Coming up next, more analysis of the arguments. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Supreme Court seems poised to reject attempts to kick former President Donald Trump off the 2024 presidential ballot, with conservative and liberal justices in apparent agreement in a case that puts them at the heart of a presidential election. Joining me to discuss the oral arguments today is Professor Harold Krent of the Chicago-Kent College of Law. After hearing the oral arguments, do you have any doubt that the justices are going to rule against Colorado here? The justices will rule against Colorado. The only question is on which ground. And obviously, the two-and-a-half-hour argument covered a great deal of, of territory. But I think at the end of the day, justices on both sides of the aisle were convinced that they wanted no part of this case in terms of trying to figure out what Section 3 of the 14th Amendment means through its disqualification for insurrection. And they will definitely find a way so as to 
keep Trump on the ballot for now. Do you think they want no part of it because there's been a lot of controversy around the court? And with the Bush v. Gore decision, people are still criticizing the court about that. I mean, do you think that they just want to stay away from this, even if it is a decision that only the Supreme Court can make? There may be a little bit of the sort of residual concern of the court's reputation that founded in the wake of Bush versus Gore. But I think there's a different concern here, and that is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment doesn't really clarify what's supposed to happen. What is the process that's supposed to take place? And justices kept hammering Colorado's attorneys by saying, you know, how much process is due? Shouldn't be the voters who get to decide who remains on the ballot? What if there's a retaliation and People try to throw up Democrats off the ballots as well. And at the end of the day, one state could have the power to wreck the mechanism for a fair vote amongst the entire nation. So at the the end of the day, the court was saying, look, maybe Congress needs to suggest what the procedure is, but we don't want one or two or three states to take away a vote from the entire country for a national office. For state office, that's different. But for national office, we need some kind of orderly mechanism to determine who remains on the ballot. I mean, that seems not like a legal argument. That seems like a political argument. You know, we don't want to take this away from the people. We don't want chaos at the ballot. I mean, that's what it sounds like. It is partially a policy slash political argument, but it's also grounded in what they call kind of implicit preclusion of the Section 3 of the 14th, meaning that Congress really has to set the ground rules. And the one way to sort of see this uh, more legally is that in Section 3, Congress has the power to reinstate someone who's disqualified by a two-thirds vote. How could they exercise this power if a state would bar the individual from the ballot first, because then the issue would never arise And Congress wouldn't have this power to, in effect, give a pardon or to allow someone who committed insurrection to still be seated. So it's in their view, Section 3 is about giving Congress the ultimate authority. And so they didn't want a particular state or two states or four states to take actions that would deprive Congress of this ultimate power of seating somebody who otherwise would be excluded because of the participation in insurrection. We know that the special counsel is not trying him for insurrection. No, he's not, and which suggests under the theory of the court that this case (laughs) should not have arisen um, because the only mechanism currently in place for disqualifying a candidate other than age and residency and so forth um, is being tried and convicted for insurrection. And that's not going to happen. I know this is the first time they're interpreting this provision. They refer to a case from 1869, Griffin's case, and that was from a federal court in Virginia, not even the Supreme Court. Is that the best they could do? So that case was by Chase, who would become the chief justice. And it was right in the aftermath of the 14th Amendment. And so the idea being that the this is the contemporary original meaning of the 14th Amendment somehow flowed into that case. Of course, it's even more ironic because then the Chief Justice changed his mind uh, later in, in a subsequent decision. I, I don't think at the end of the day that's going to be 
dispositive, though there was clearly a lot of discussion of the case, because it gives the tone or the assumption that it's Congress will set the rules. And Congress did for years. Congress had a provision that in the Enforcement Acts from, that was in place from 1870 to 1948, which did provide a mechanism for challenging the legitimacy of someone who was elected but yet an insurrectionist. No one knew and no one suggested at oral argument why that was repealed in 1948. So it remains a mystery. But again, I think that that's the mechanism that the court was searching for, that this is it's too dangerous to allow 50 states to come up with different views. And what's the court supposed to do with that? Rather, instead, there should be an orderly determination. Some people think there there already was an orderly determination that Congress did that through the January 6th hearings, but to the court that it was not a determination per se that President Trump engaged in insurrection and therefore should be disqualified. Do you have any idea what likely route they'll take to get to their decision? From listening from the case, there there are some justices who were concerned about whether the president was even covered under the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. I think the strong argument is that he is covered, but there was discussion of that. I think more of the justices seem to agree, however, that it's up to Congress. You can call it a implicit preemption. You can call it a kind of decision that the amendment is not self-executing, at least not by the states. And some kind of theory along those lines will, I think, attract a majority in the case. Do you think that a majority is what the chief wants or the chief wants unanimity? Certainly the chief wants unanimity. It's possible that there there will be unanimity, not on whether the president is covered. I think there certainly is going to be a split on that issue. But there may be unanimity on the idea that the states are not the place in which disqualification should start. Rather, it has to be a different kind of process, one that has only so far been delineated by the criminal statute that still remains, uh, which punishes insurrection. So what do you think about a more than two-hour argument about Donald Trump being an insurrectionist, at least under Colorado's Supreme Court, and yet only one question on whether he was an insurrectionist? I didn't think the court wanted to touch the question of whether ex-President Trump was an insurrectionist or not, and they certainly steered clear from that throughout almost the entire um, argument. You know, that obviously has been the issue that has attracted attention uh, nationally, you know, but I think the really the more important determination here is what about that process? You know, how is it that one state can find he's an insurrectionist, another state can find that he's not? And then even more so, we do have an, at least a, a definition of what insurrection is, but we have no definition of what giving aid and comfort to the enemy is, which is also in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And so how would the court have the tools to figure out whether someone has given aid or comfort to the enemies? It truly is uh, mind-boggling. And I think the recognition is the amendment's just not very well-written. And what do you do to try to have a functioning government when you have part of the 14th Amendment, which is cryptic and probably not thought out very well? We know everybody needed it to get rid of those Confederates who remained in state offices. But beyond that, it's a little difficult to know what the entire picture was or design. And maybe it was just a faulty design, you know, at the get-go. And then that puts the court in the difficult situation of either trying to salvage it, Section 3, or putting it in Congress's lap. And it seems that what they're going to do is put the issue in Congress's lap 
as opposed to trying to create an interpretation of the amendment that is workable. There's a theory that the court may try to balance things out by ruling against Colorado here, but then not taking on the case on President Trump's claims of presidential immunity, sort of balancing it out. I don't know if the court's going to take that immunity. I assume there'll be a cert petition filed within a matter of days, as the D.C. Circuit indicated in the roadmap that it gave to President Trump's lawyers. But I do predict that if they do grant certiorari, they would rule against the president. Presidential immunity should exist from some crimes, but not for the charges, at least, of sedition um, and conspiring to overthrow the government. There needs to be a balance there between where the president should maintain his freedom from judicial second-guessing. But I think the court perhaps didn't reason it adequately, but clearly stated that any kind of balancing test would suggest it's more important to have criminal process here than to claim immunity. And I think the court would agree with that, though probably on slightly different reasoning. So before I let you go, I have to mention one thing. Justice Clarence Thomas did not recuse himself, even though his wife has been connected in many ways to January 6th. And he was actually very active in the questioning today as well. He's maintained and steadfastly that whatever his wife did is not a reflection of his views and that he can maintain a unbiased perspective despite the fact that she participated in events that led to January 6th. And his presence today is a testament to the firmness of his belief. Thanks so much for being on the show, Hal. That's Professor Harold Krent of the Chicago Kent College of Law. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show... We'll take a close look at the historic verdict in Michigan, the first time a mother has been found guilty of a mass school shooting committed by her son. Will that verdict open the floodgates to other parents being prosecuted for the criminal acts their children commit? I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. It was an unprecedented verdict in Michigan. For the first time, a mother was found guilty of the mass school shooting committed by her son. A jury convicted Jennifer Crumbly of four counts of involuntary manslaughter for each of the students her teenage son murdered in a shooting rampage at Oxford High School in 2021. The question now is, does this case provide a blueprint for other prosecutors to bring criminal charges against parents for the crimes their children commit? Joining me is Echo Yanka, a professor at the University of Michigan Law School. In a real sense, was it Jennifer Crumbly's parenting that was on trial here? I think the prosecution painted a picture of her as an indifferent, callous parent, one who is more interested in her horses and hobbies, her extramarital affairs, than getting her child the help that he explicitly seemed to be seeking. But of course, the prosecution knew that being a bad parent is not by itself illegal, and, and having that be the only line of argument would be not just legally insufficient, but probably unpalatable. And so they really made a point that 
it's not just that she was a bad parent. It's that she had opportunity after opportunity to do something to avoid these killings. And that even given a million little moments where she could have saved those lives, she did nothing. The prosecution had so much evidence against Crumbly, from her son's text that she didn't answer, to journal entries, to videos of her at the shooting range with her son. What was the best evidence in your mind? I think you put your finger exactly on it, that as the prosecution tried to hammer home, it just seems like there were a million moments where she could have done something, given him the help he needs. There's a moment, for example, when he is caught searching online about ammunition, and she texts back, you know, I don't care if you do this, just don't get caught, laugh out loud, you know, LOL. But if you ask me the single moment, the single moment that was the most powerful when I talk to friends, when I debate with legal colleagues, and frankly, just around the dinner table, I would say the fact that the school called her in that very day when Ethan is drawing pictures of violence and death, and they asked the Crumleys to take Ethan home. And depending on who you believe, they either refuse or together they decide not to do it. But in any case, they walk out of there knowing that he had a weapon. The foreperson told NBC that she was swayed by the belief that Crumley was the last person who had custody of the gun and yeah. that, therefore, she was responsible for it. And she said, the picture of her handling the gun last was pretty damning for me. And I'm wondering if that is faulty reasoning. I mean, can you yeah. really draw a conclusion of guilt from the last information that the prosecution has? So I feel torn about that. I'll, I'll say why. On the one hand, clearly part of the background of the case, part of the overall theory of her involuntary manslaughter rests on her negligence. And that rests on the idea that an ordinary person would have known that Ethan was going to do this. An ordinary person should have seen that this danger existed. And so the fact that the parents knew that there was a weapon, that the parents didn't tell the school, that the parents, as you say, in some sense could have, for example, locked up the gun. All those things are in the mix. But I do worry about a jury foreman. You know, if I were a defense lawyer on appeal, you might think such reasoning um, assumes evidence not in fact, and it's not clear that it is the legally relevant standard. So I think I understand the, the feeling behind it, but I worry that if that sentence is literally true, you know, it, it's going to give the defense something to hold on to. Crumbly took the stand in her own defense, as you know. Often when that happens, the whole focus of the jury is on the credibility of the defendant. And she didn't come across well on the stand. The jury foreperson said, once we went into deliberation, it became clear that she was not a super reliable witness in this case. Yeah. Look, her testimony was not great. I thought the worst moment was when she was asked what she would do differently today. And her answer was nothing, right? I understand the impulse. Her answer is, I just didn't do anything wrong. But when you're staring at, you know, a day where four children were killed and seven more were injured, that answer just feels callous. So I, I definitely worried about that. That being said, look, it, the defense had a great legal principle on which they were relying, but they had a really tough task because the prosecution had really painted her as callous bordering on monstrous. And I think the defense felt a lot of pressure to humanize her. The only image that the jurors had in their minds was of a parent who just didn't care about her son and her son's danger to others. And so I understand why they felt strategically like they had to do something to claw back an image of a human mother who was doing her best. 
You said the defense had a good theory. Tell me what the theory is. Well, the defense, I think, had two prongs. The second we just talked about, that look, I mean, there's a kind of human instinct. This is a mother doing her best. And moreover, you're saying a reasonable person could have foreseen this. You're asking a mother to foresee something that mothers might think is bordering on unthinkable. You're asking a mom to foresee that her son will be monstrous, will, will be a mass shooter. And so that has a kind of, I wouldn't say it's the very point of the legal theory, but it has a kind of diffuse tug on a juror's heart that surely requiring a mother to see that is a strain. But the core of the defense theory really is the first-year legal principle, the one that you learn when you're starting law school, that you are just not responsible for the actions of another, that when somebody who is a responsible agent acts, it severs the causal chain. And I think the defense really thought at the end of the day that not only as a legal matter, but as a social and moral matter, that has a lot of weight in people's minds. Do you think that this case provides a blueprint to other prosecutors and we'll see more parents being charged for the criminal acts of their children? Yeah, this is a question I've been asked a lot, and I, and I, you know, I struggle to answer it well. On the one hand, as we've discussed, this case had such egregious facts, such heartrending facts, where moment after moment, things were going wrong. And to be honest, you know, perhaps... Perhaps it's just an extraordinary case with extraordinary facts. You know, as lawyers say, the kind of case that should be confined to its facts. On the other hand, you know, the life of the law is precedent. Lawyers argue by analogy, and prosecutors certainly do too. And once a prosecutor has this precedent in the world, it's impossible to imagine they won't use it. And further, as I've said, as I've said before, and I think it's really important, prosecutors can use these things in ways that are much less spectacular and visible than a Crumley case, right? So in the Crumley case, the whole nation, indeed, the whole world's interested because the facts are so visceral. But we won't see the case where the prosecutor has a parent who thinks they have a legal defense and says, look, I'm going to offer you three years, but if you don't accept this plea bargain, I'm going to prosecute you for 15 or 20. And if that person pleads out, they may be giving up on their legal defenses. They may serve many years in jail. And it will be quite invisible. It will be quite under the radar. And I worry about those cases. As far as appellate issues, you mentioned one. Do you see any you know, obvious appellate issues? There are going to be some, right? I mean, I do think the foreman of the jury speaking, you know, there, there's a reason juries deliberate in secret. So, I, you know, that, that statement that she thought Jennifer Crumley was last to handle the gun might be worrying. There are always going to be issues on which the judge ruled, in particular, some of the evidence the judge let in, some of the really, really gut-wrenching photographic evidence. Surely some part of the appeal will be that that evidence was more prejudicial than probative. You know, the argument will be something like, everybody knows that Ethan committed this horrible act. There was no need to see the result of it, right? There was no, there's no real addition by seeing the pictures. It just emotionally affected the jurors. But I think ultimately, the thing on which you appeal is, the legal principle. I mean, if this goes all the way up to the Michigan Supreme Court, what you're going to be doing is asking the Supreme Court to reinforce the legal norm that one just can't be responsible for another person's act. That parents who are, you know, the, the hypothetical would be parents who are doing their best but are afraid that their children are tempted to violence. At some point, they get to say, I've done what I can. His actions are his now.
What about the judge let in a broad range of evidence from the time she spent with her horses to an extramarital yeah. affair? Yeah, I mean, some of that I do think will be will be taken up on appeal. In particular, as I said, the photos of the killing will be taken up on appeal. Maybe the, the horses, although that stuff doesn't seem... You know, the question is there is it sort of just a diffuse character assassination. The extramarital affair is an interesting one. The judge actually initially ruled that it could not come in. But it was the defense counsel that eventually decided they wanted to push the questioning. And even though perhaps that conversation should have been had outside of the earshot of the jury, the defense counsel ultimately invited that evidence in. So I don't see any real problematic issue there. The defense counsel waived the objection. The father's trial is coming up. Will he learn from what happened here? Can he use different strategies, you know, change things up for his trial? Or maybe even try to plead out? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I'm, you know, my mind is spinning about that, too. Obviously, the parents are the ones in the most pain, and Jennifer Crumley was convicted. But other than those people, nobody had a worse day than James Crumley, right? Now, I would say every case is different. You know, this case was supposed to be tried together uh, until really almost the last minute, where they decided to separate the cases. And presumably, that's because each of them thinks that, or at least one of them thought that there were more damning facts towards the other, right? So you saw Jennifer argue that it was the father, James, who bought the gun, and he's the one in charge of locking it up. And presumably his team will have arguments about why she's more culpable. And most importantly, every jury's different, right? So, but it seems to me the most obvious thing that'll happen given a conviction is that his team will move for a change of venue. They'll just think this poisons the, it was already such an emotional and difficult case, so visible that the conviction is just too poisonous for them. And then a part of me really does wonder if at this late hour, if they really would reach out for a plea bargain and if, frankly, the prosecution would think there's anything to be gained after they've already done all the work to take the case to trial once. Thanks so much for being on the show. That's Echo Yanka, a professor at the University of Michigan School of Law. Jennifer Crumbly will be sentenced in April. Her husband will go on trial later this month. Ethan Crumbly is serving a sentence of life in prison after pleading guilty in the case. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Podcast. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by subscribing and listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.